0: Well, Sir Christopher, it's a great honour to interview you for the Eminent Scholars Archive. Your journey began at Cambridge in the 70s, where you laid the foundations for your illustrious academic career. And this came to fruition in the 90s with your Chair in International Law at the London School of Economics. Your interests were broad, but you are noted especially for the deep experience in the laws relating to armed conflict and war. Significantly, this time coincided with the end of the Cold War and a short period of a new world order in international affairs when the UN Security Council was less split ideologically. And subsequently, of course, there's been the reassertion of Russian power and the rise of China. In recognition of your services to international law, you were awarded the Order of St. Michael and St. George the united in 2009. After the London School of Economics, you attained the high point of a juristic trajectory in 2009 with a seat on the International Court of Justice. And for your services to International Justice, you were created GBE in 2018. In more recent years, you were appointed as Master of, your, of Magdalen College, or alma mater. This is a rich repertoire of experience and memories, which I hope we can explore. So could we start with your early life? You were born in Wellingborough, Northamptonshire in 1955.
1: Yes, that's right. Um, Wellingborough was where my mother's family had lived for several generations. Um, My father was in the Merchant Navy, so he was actually at sea when I was born. um, I didn't see him, though I don't remember the meeting uh, until I was about six months old.
0: Can you tell me
1: anything about your parents? Yes certainly as I say my father started his career as a merchant navy officer and then took a series of shore jobs from the late 1950s and then in 1961 moved to Singapore as a harbour pilot um, and I'll come back to that later but my parents settled in Singapore for the next 40 years uh, my mother was a school teacher she taught PE and uh, uh, then gave up work in order to bring up the children for a few years, went back to teaching in Singapore in the 1960s. So
0: you went to the Rayburn Park School in Singapore, Uh, when would this have been?
1: That would be starting in October 1961, Um, before that I'd had a short time at a a primary school in Wellingborough, Um, not terribly successful because my younger sister was born very premature and in those days uh, there was such a terror that i would bring home some illness from school that i was kept off school for about six months and uh, was really rather behind when we moved to singapore raven park was a wonderful school though it was um, a small um, i suppose you would call it a private school but it was run by the port of singapore authority for its uh, the children of its expatriate employees because the f- parents were on fixed-term contracts and children will be coming and going at odd times of the year they wouldn't be starting or finishing necessarily with the beginning or end of a term and I was there for four years thoroughly enjoyed it one of the best places I've ever been to
0: it sounds a wonderful place and uh, looking on the internet I saw that the headmistress during your time was quite well known the lady Muriel Mackay
1: Yes, she's she's only died a few years ago, actually. She lived to a great old age. She was a wonderful headmistress. She had a very firm policy that everyone should be taught to a point where they were about a term ahead of what would be expected back in England or Australia, New Zealand. Um, Because in those days, at the end of a tour of duty, you went home by sea. So the likelihood is that any child would lose half a term of education uh, depending on when their father or mother uh, took their long leave.
0: There were three houses at the school Keppel, Raffles and Ridley, And I wondered which was yours?
1: I was in Raffles uh, named after the founder of uh, modern Singapore uh, red color red I can remember that much
0: Uh, i also noticed that when Singapore gained independence in 1965, the lease wasn't renewed. And in 1972, the school moved to Alexandria Park, but this was after you'd left.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: Do you still have any connections with Singapore?
1: No, alas. Well, uh, yes, in in one sense. I'm on a panel of uh, arbitrators nominated by the government of Singapore, and uh, I go back there whenever I can but the family link has gone I'm afraid both my parents retired to England in the early 2000s and they're both dead now and uh, I no longer have any relatives or close friends living out there.
0: Right. So I mean a huge cultural change from England I mean what was it like living virtually on the equator? Absolutely. That time? In what was also you know an important centre which was rapidly shrinking in its importance
1: um it was absolutely fascinating the change um you have to understand that in those days a town like wellingborough was there was no ethnic diversity whatsoever i don't think i had ever met anybody who wasn't white until we moved to singapore and singapore is an extraordinarily vibrant and diverse community and so in 1961 i can remember waking up in the station hotel there as a boy at six and going exploring I think my mother was horrified uh, and you know the extraordinary smells and colors the excitement of life there and it was a society it was virtually independent by that stage there was no longer a British governor uh, Lee Kuan Yew Prime Minister of Singapore ran this, the state um, independence in 65 was really just the the culmination of what had already happened and uh it was it was just a, a wonderfully exciting place to grow up.
0: Must have been wonderful. Uh, did the family move back to Wellingborough again, or was your attendance at Wellingborough School just a coincidence?
1: No, we we, we had a family connection in Wellingborough, and I was sent to school there because that was the obvious place to go. Um, I didn't board. I've always been immensely grateful for that. My my grandmother. It had just been widowed and my parents thought it would be good company for her and rather nicer for me if i lived with her so i went as a day boy to the school
0: Which must have been very pleasant actually it reminds me of one of our scholars peter stein who lived with his grandmother for a time was wrong school yeah. as a young boy um what subjects did you study or specialise in
1: Uh, Well, I was only 10 when I started at Wellingborough, so you did everything at that stage. Um, When I got to A-level, I did history, English, and Latin. Uh, History was a natural choice. It's always been my passion as uh, an academic interest, and I still, you know, half the books I own are history books of one kind or another. The uh, English, well, again, natural subject. Uh, Latin, I I, I feel with hindsight, I enjoyed studying Latin, but I think it was... um, I, I, I was persuaded into it on the grounds that it would be useful to me as a lawyer. Um, I can't say it has been terribly useful as a lawyer
0: <laughs> this brings us to your university days mm-hmm. to the time when you came up to Magdalen that would have been 1973
1: yes that's right
0: and you read, you did a BA in law first class what made you decide to come to Cambridge
1: Um, Well I'd always thought that I I wanted to go to Cambridge if I could because it struck me as first of all this wonderful university with a tremendous global reputation but also I very much liked the college system and I was inspired I think in choice of college by my headmaster who was an old Magdalen man. Um, The school itself didn't have a particularly strong Oxbridge connection at the time Uh, I was the only candidate who applied to either Oxford or Cambridge in my year but um, John Sugden managed to persuade me that Magdalen would be a, a great place to grow up and that uh, he was absolutely right. So
0: what were your impressions when you first arrived off the College?
1: I thought it was a most exciting place to be in. Uh, there was a lot going on, um, very friendly people, very strong sense of community, which I think the College still has. Uh, And I was completely captivated by the political scene in Cambridge. The, uh, you know, I'd enjoyed debating when I was at school, but the Cambridge Union was the most marvellous place to be.
0: And that was um, something which you participated in very strongly. Yes. You were very good at as well. Um, What were your impressions of Cambridge as a small town in the 70s, a very different place to now?
1: Um, like most of Britain in the early 70s, there was a slightly run-down and almost grubby air about a lot of the town. You know, people don't realize how much it has been cleaned up physically in the center in the space of the last um, three decades. Um, London had that feeling as well. Uh, but I'm afraid, like most students, I was more interested in life in the university and I didn't travel very much around the town. uh, I can remember when I was a graduate student being invited to a dinner party in a house uh, off Victoria Road and I had to get out a map and find out where this was and it's all of about 10 minutes walk from Magdalen.
0: When you arrived, Professors that were in place would have included Professor Glenhall Williams. Did he
1: come across your path Oh you? yes, he taught criminal law and taught some of the... There was a very good introductory week for lawyers in 1973, something I was rather sorry that uh, we dropped. But I shall always remember his lecture in that. And also Tony Weir talking about um, case law and how it evolved. Uh, talking in particular about um, negligent misstatement. I can remember him explaining that principle and how it had evolved. Uh, Tony Jolovitz talking about the importance of not separating tort and contract too rigidly.
0: Fascinating. Someone else whom you might have come across would have been Professor Perry.
1: Now, I didn't come across Clive Perry as an undergraduate, but when I did the LLB in 76 to 77, he taught me and... He was extremely kind to me at the personal level, uh, you know, he used, he used to meet and chat from time to time. I found him a, you know, a, a really very really inspiring teacher.
0: Right. Um, I've actually asked you about him, our, our sequence here, I realise, I'm sorry. I might return to him later. Of course. Thank you. Um, Toby Nelson at all?
1: Yes, uh, Toby was teaching in uh, Legal History, which I studied in the second year. And I thoroughly enjoyed that. It was one of the f- subjects I enjoyed most of my undergraduate years. And he made it very uh, interesting, as did John Baker and uh, Michael Pritchard. Peter Stein? Yes, Peter Stein teaching Roman law. Um, I f- Peter was chairman of the faculty board at that time, which was an office that meant absolutely nothing to me as an undergraduate at all. But I can remember very early in our first term, um, Peter lecturing in the East Room and stopping there uh, and saying at the beginning of the lecture that he just received the news of Stanley De Smith's death and asking us Mr. Keeper a, a moment's silence. Um, sadly, I never had the pleasure of meeting Stanley De Smith.
0: Right. He s- didn't have a very long time here. No. Unfortunately. Lectures who would have been in place would have included uh, Mr. As he then was, at it. Philip yes, 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 yes. Did he teach you? Not as an
1: undergraduate. He taught me, again, for the LLB when I was... Um, he taught the European Union law, or EEC law paper as it would have been, and also part of uh, international institutions.
0: Right. Of course, he'd um, had his time in the Foreign Office, a very interesting time, yes. where he actually had been posted to the Professor... Well, he was then Mr. Tiny, any the names?
1: Uh, I was never taught by John Tiley, no I didn't meet him until I joined the law faculty as an assistant lecturer.
0: Bob Heppel?
1: Yes I remember Bob um, and you know we were all rather in awe of Bob Heppel because of his reputation as uh, a human rights lawyer and an ANC supporter in South Africa. Very
0: adventurous life.
1: Yes he was arrested with with Nelson Mandela I think at one point. That's Uh,
0: right actually was arrested (laughs) is David Williams
1: David Williams I remember very well he taught um, constitutional law and uh, uh, one of the things I particularly liked about his style of teaching was that he always managed to weave historical anecdote and references into uh, his lectures on constitutional law he had an encyclopedic knowledge of American elections and I remember visiting him once when he was President of Wilson in the President's Lodge and he got this vast collection of button badges from past um, presidential election campaigns.
0: John Collier?
1: Indeed John Collier taught me for company law in my third year that was when I first came across him but of course I later got to know him very well as a public international lawyer. He had a very engaging style of supervising.
0: My limited experience was he was
1: very entertaining as well. <laughs> Hugely, <laughs> and company law is not an easy subject to make ex- to um, uh, make uh, entertaining.
0: John Hopkins.
1: John Hopkins was one of the people I knew best as an undergraduate. Um, he taught me. He supervised me for constitutional law and then for equity, and uh, I've always in, always enjoyed his supervisions. Though I. Have to confess, we used to count how many matches he got through trying to light his pipe in the course of the supervision. I think the record was seventeen. <laughs>
0: um, Colin Turpin, perhaps.
1: Yes, I remember Colin Turpin. Um, I can't. I, he never supervised me, but I certainly went to his lectures. I'm trying to think; they would have been in constitutional law as well. I think.
0: Yes. Derek
1: uh, I only came across him very uh, indirectly as an undergraduate because uh, I didn't take any of the subjects he was lecturing in and he didn't supervise Morgan students but I I remember he was President of Queen's and he used to host the Middle Temple events in, Middle, in uh, Cambridge.
0: Interesting.
1: Um, Len Seeley at that point? Yes Len, Len was a wonderful lecturer in contract as well as in, com- uh, in company law uh, very clear, very easy to take good notes from. Ellie no, I, Ellie wasn't here at that stage. Um, he was away in Australia as legal adviser to the, uh, the first legal advisor to the Department of Foreign Affairs. Um, so I didn't meet Ellie until he came back from Australia in, would have been early 1978.
0: Michael Pritchard, would have been
1: here. Yes, he was. He was one of the great um, lecturers on uh, legal history,
0: and of course, Nicky
1: Davis. Well, he's probably the person I knew best as an undergraduate of the the people mm-hmm. teaching in the faculty. He was director of studies at Magdalen. He'd interviewed me. He'd taken a real gamble in taking me because I had uh, I'd rather made a mess of my A levels, and uh, he was quite one of the best teachers I've ever come across. He gave me one of the best pieces of advice I've ever heard about writing lectures, which is not to over-prepare, which is not the reputation that he had because he was always very meticulous. And always to remember that if a student who was only borderline for a two-one could take good notes from your lectures, that meant the lectures were well structured, you should aim at that. Very
0: interesting.
1: But as a supervisor, he was inspiring.
0: Someone else who was praising him in that way was Philip Eliot.
1: Interesting. Yes. yes.
0: Um, David Yale was a reader at that point did he ever teach you?
1: I went to some of his lectures on legal history um, but I didn't know him particularly well as a student. I got to know him quite well as when I first became a lecturer uh, but uh, as a student no I didn't come across him very much
0: Did you have any mentors
1: at this point? Amongst the faculty, well, certainly the person who had the biggest impact was Mickey Dyers, um, who was... uh, Mickey could appear rather forbidding until you got to know him, but he was kindness itself once you did. I'll give you two instances of that. Uh, I was president of the union in the the Lent term of my third year, which meant that uh, there was then quite a considerable amount of cramming to be done for part two when I finished um Mickey was on leave that year uh, but I bumped into him in college and he asked me how things were going and I said I was having a bit of difficulty with some things and he took me over to his room and produced the proofs of his book on jurisprudence he said, I've just finished correcting these if these would be of any help to you take them away and have a look at them which I thought was wonderfully kind and turned out to be extremely helpful the second thing is that at the end of um, the Lent term that year I got engaged and uh, Every uh, Easter term, the Saturday before the tripod started, um, Mickey Dias used to host a dinner for all the lawyers in college with the master, a couple of other fellows, and a guest speaker. And his lovely wife, Nora, used to hold a private dinner party at their house for the wives of the um, guest speaker, the master and fellows who were attending. And uh, the diocese invited my fiancee, was a second year undergraduate to uh, to go out to the house for the ladies dinner that that evening Morgan was still of course an all-male college and she had a wonderful time and again I thought it was an example of uh, a degree of kindness of closeness of human warmth which it's very rare to find in a university
0: yes I was fortunate enough to interview him actually for the archive um, very grateful to have had his reminiscences of a a time. Um, Could you say something about why you were attracted and when, at what point, to international law?
1: Well, I'd love to say that this was what I had always intended to do. Uh, And in a sense, I'd always been interested in international law because growing up in Singapore, you came across international law quite a lot there were the boundary disputes with Malaysia the breakup of the federation things like that the Vietnam war was going on but for some reason I can never remember I didn't study international law as an undergraduate I took family law instead which probably wasn't a very good decision on my part because I didn't do very well in it and I decided I'd stay and do an LLB Uh, I got the funding for that so I looked around for which subjects were the most interesting and uh, I picked a couple of international law papers until one day I got a phone call from my tutor at home who said if you do all international law we can get you a scholarship so I did all international law papers.
0: Interesting.
1: (laughs) It's uh, perhaps not the best reason for becoming an international lawyer but I certainly thoroughly enjoyed it.
0: Tell us something about
1: the various scholarships that you were awarded uh, Well my school was very generous when I left I got a war memorial scholarship which uh, from a fund that now sadly has run dry which was set up to commemorate people who'd been killed in the First World War Uh, It wasn't a lot of money but it certainly helped at a time when uh, I wasn't eligible for a grant because my parents lived overseas and then uh, at the end of the first year I got a first class result and got a Squire scholarship and a college scholarship and uh, you see when I went to do the LLB I would have been given an Arnold McNair scholarship uh, which was to help fund you through your L.B. LLM year. Um, McNair was still alive when I came up to Cambridge and it's one of my great regrets that I never met him. He died when I was quite early in my second year but apparently up until Fairly soon before his death, he used to wander around the law library, and uh, students would go and ask him questions. First. He was a most interesting man, I think, arguably, one of the most fascinating characters of early 20th century Cambridge. Strong liberal, president of the union, as was his brother, and a great campaigner for women's rights in Cambridge, before then going on to the ICJ to be president.
0: Thank you you were president of the Cambridge Union Society in 1976 which implies that debating was one of your strengths and obviously good practice for your career um, did you how did you actually come to be involved did you just decide that this was something you wanted to be coming involved with
1: yes it was a very political time the early 70s uh, you know, the Heath government had collapsed there were two general elections in 1974 uh, very large turnout at elections and the undergraduate political scene was very much divided between the three main parties. Uh, I be, I'd been politically active uh, all through my teens and so this was a natural place to go and I enjoyed debating. I found it was very exhilarating if it went well, very depressing if it went badly but uh, that's quite good experience for later on. I always remember when I applied for an assistant lectureship Peter Stein asked me oh I see you were president of the Union why didn't you go into politics much more natural course than becoming a, an academic and well, I can't remember what I said but I do remember as soon as I got home after the interview thinking well why didn't I say to him that McNair had followed that route I, I, I fluffed that answer definitely
0: Very interesting. Um, during this period, this was 1974, you joined the Middle Temple. Uh, did you have to go down regularly to dine?
1: I did go down and keep some, did, keep some terms, but not very many. Most of the dining I did when I was a Bar student uh, a couple of years later. I joined Middle Temple because my closest friend at Cambridge, David Bean, who is now in the Court of Appeal, was a Middle Templar already. And he said, you know, it's, it's a nice inn, it's a friendly one, come and join us.
0: Well you graduated LLB in International Law first class in 1977, and then in 78 you were called to the bar. Uh, What were the circumstances of this?
1: Well I had intended to practice as a barrister, uh, very, very clearly intended to practice, but a couple of things were beginning to appear on the horizon. First of all I was getting married and therefore a stable income was suddenly very attractive. And secondly, I'd done some teaching during my LLB year, and rather more teaching because I was a part-time college lecturer during the year I did my bar exams. And I I very much enjoyed supervising. So the possibility of coming back to Cambridge as a fellow began to loom on the horizon. But I, I thought it was still important to get the necessary professional qualification. And I think one of the regrets I have about the way in which law has developed is that far fewer people going into university teaching now have taken a professional qualification and got any professional experience and I think both the practicing profession and the academic world have lost out rather as a result
0: Uh, you also became a fellow at Maudlin in 1978 where you remained until 1996 what were the circumstances of this?
1: Well I think that's the circumstances were largely that Nicky Dias and Colin Colbert who were the two law fellows that Morton had at the time uh, were extremely kind in seeing that I would quite like to stay uh, I had applied unsuccessfully for a job at Oxford a few months earlier and uh, they persuaded the governing body to create a fellowship of um, CTO position as it would be called today uh, which was a fixed term one to give me a chance to get a university post
0: in 1979 I noticed that your name was included on the title page of the international law reports and in the preface Eddie mentioned your extensive summary of the fisheries jurisdiction the case of the UK versus Ireland so you must have been already at that point involved with the international law reports.
1: Yes I was, I don't think I would have been on the title page at that stage but I uh, Ellie had come back from Australia at the beginning of 78 and invited me to help him with editing the international law reports, which I very happily accepted. And I think the first volume I worked on was volume 52. Uh, but uh, yes, I, I I then joined him as co-editor in the 1980s. Volume 82, I think is the first one on, on which I, I'm uh, on the spine, but perhaps on the title page a bit earlier, I can't remember.
0: I think so. Um, your assistant lectureships and 1981 to 84, what were the circumstances of your Kane's lectureship?
1: Well I'd applied for unsuccessfully for a number of assistant lectureships. I think in those days if you were a CTO you applied for any assistant lectureship that came up uh, but uh, the faculty appointed two new assistant lecturers in um, about Easter of nineteen eighty one. Sorry, and I was lucky enough to be one of them. Barry Ryder, I think, was the other.
0: So, why did you decide to lecture rather than practice full time?
1: I think I was inclined to look for an academic career by a mixture of considerations. I very much enjoyed teaching. I wanted the opportunity to do some research. And as I say, the the uncertainties of the bar, I didn't have friends and family at the bar. So the uncertainties of the bar rather put me off at the time. I think the bar is much better now at looking after its younger practitioners.
0: In this period of assistant lecturer and then lecturer as well, 15 years in all, you began to write journal articles. And I counted 11 in your CV until 1996. The two of these were in the three years that you were assistant lecturer. They're all on international law and also what might loosely be called the law of war and conflict. And I wonder what drew you to this topic so strongly and so early in your career?
1: Um, Partly chance. When I was appointed uh, as an assistant lecturer, the faculty wanted me to take up European community law which I was very happy to do. But part of the deal was that, as I was being asked to get up a a new subject from scratch, um, they would give me um, a subject that I had already studied and worked on. And the Laws of War was a particularly attractive option. John Hopkins, who had covered that part of the course, was, uh, I think, interested in moving on to something else. But what was particularly attractive from my point of view was that it gave me a course all of my own. Uh, it was part of a paper that is probably best described as the Oppenheim uh, Volume 2 paper with three courses of 16 lectures each. Um, Ellie gave the ones on uh, the 16 lectures on dispute settlement. Uh, Derek Bowick did 16 on the law and the use of force, the self-defense, reprisals, intervention and so on. Um, but the third unit was the law applicable during an armed conflict, uh, and I was given that and given it entirely to myself, which was a wonderful um, vote of confidence from the faculty, but also a, a great opportunity for me as a young assistant lecturer.
0: It's very interesting indeed, and um, this focus seems to have set the seal on your career. Other international lawyers during this time were, and I come back to Professor Perry. I think he was in his last years.
1: Yes, Clive died in nineteen eighty two, if memory serves me right. Um, which was a terrible loss to us. Uh, but he hadn't been well for quite some time. Yes, he he was very very much a, an inspiration when I was doing my LLB, and was very kind to me uh, as a young lecturer just starting out.
0: At that point, uh, Derek Bart was in the UCL chair. Did you have any? interactions with
1: him yes very much so once I started teaching because uh, as he gave the use of force part and I was giving the um, section of the lectures dealing with uh, once war had started if you like once conflict had broken out uh, we needed to talk about what each of us was covering and uh, he was extremely helpful to me as a youngster in starting out very clear lecturer very organized in his presentation which is something I tried to emulate
0: James Crawford took over during your time yes. uh, and perhaps you uh, interacted with him?
1: Yes, indeed. Um, well, James and I were only colleagues here for a few years. Um, we, He started in about 1990-91 uh, when Derek retired from the wheelchair and uh, obviously we, we talked a lot about uh, teaching international law here. We um, both took part in teaching the undergraduate course I've always enjoyed teaching undergraduates. I think one of the things that I I didn't like about the way the LSE was moving in particular was the number of people who wanted to teach almost entirely postgraduate courses. I think it's good to teach both. If you don't teach undergraduates, you don't really understand where the postgraduates are coming from. Uh, But yes, James and I worked together in that and had done some work together on the International Law Reports and various other projects.
0: Someone else who was here was uh,
1: Vaughan Lowe, first as a lecturer and then a reader. Yes Vaughan would have come in about 1987 or 88 uh, from Manchester. Uh, well he's become a very close friend and uh, you know we, uh, we've done cases together, we've done cases against each other at the bar, he's appeared in front of me, I've appeared in front of him, uh, it's the full carousel if you like. Uh, but uh, no, he was a very pleasant colleague to have here, a very easy person to work with.
0: I remember him uh, when I first came; he was in place before he moved to Oxford. Mm-hmm. Was very nice, very nice person. And um, someone else, of course, who would have been lecturer then was Philip Allott. Did you interact with him at all during time as a lecturer?
1: I did indeed. More on European Community Law than or European Union Laws it became than on international law because we both taught the main undergraduate course on European Community Law. He did more of the theoretical and constitutional construct. I used to do more of the nuts and bolts stuff on free movement of goods, free movement of people.
0: So of course, uh, Philip Denigrate's The Concept of the Law of War, um, as you know, <laughs> no one did really hear me discuss this with you
1: (laughs) not really Um, Philip likes saying things like that to provoke and uh, if you actually put him the question does he think it uh, there should be no law that prohibits slaughtering prisoners of war or murdering the civilians when you occupy territory I don't think he would think that that was such a good idea and Philip Philip takes the view that by having a law of war you make war acceptable That's not a new idea. Tolstoy discusses it in War and Peace and uh, it reflects the views of Admiral Fisher, the great Jackie Fisher, who said at the Hague Peace Conference that uh, the best thing to do was to threaten your enemy, that you'll boil your prisoners in oil, you'll murder his children and then he'll keep clear of you. Um, I've never actually seen that in international society. Generally speaking, the absence of any restraints within war tends to make war more likely not less.
0: Very interesting. So during this time, the Yule Church changed from Derek Bard's tenure to James Crawford. This was 91 92. Mm. Did did you sense any shift in emphasis?
1: No, not really. Um, I think James came with a great reputation. particularly in relation to supervising doctoral students. And I think that the building up of the doctoral program here, which was a very valuable um, step, uh, that was something he was very keen on. And he took a very strong leadership role in it, which I was very pleased to see. Um, But that wasn't that Derek wasn't interested in supervising doctoral students. He was an exceptionally good doctoral supervisor. I know that because I examined some of the candidates he'd um, supervised and uh, there are occasions when we both supervised the same student. I think it was just that Cambridge as a whole and the law faculty as a whole was less interested in developing the doctoral programme in Derek's day and became more enthusiastic about it when James was here.
0: It's very interesting indeed. Um, so this was the days before the Latter-day became established. Um, yeah. Um, your chair at that point being the focus of international law, do you feel that there was a shift in the centre of gravity as the, as the centre actually became more important?
1: I'm not sure I'd describe it as a, dis- as a change in the centre of gravity because James was both your professor and director of the centre for many years, um, but I think the creation of the centre by Elie Lauterpacht is one of the best things that ever happened to international law in Cambridge. Uh, it, it is an extraordinarily successful institution as a focus that brings together the existing scholar, team of scholars here in Cambridge, the students, the visiting fellows programme. I think it's uh, it's been a striking success. And uh, I don't think there's any sort of competition between the centre and the Huell chair. I think they've worked very happily together. Ben um, Benvenisti, of course, now holds the chair and the directorship.
0: Yes. When the Lachbach Centre opened in 1985 with Eddie as the Director, did you interact with this and did did it affect, do you feel that it affected the study of international law?
1: I think it was a very beneficial development. Um, Yes, I was involved with it. Uh, I never held office at the Centre, partly because I had a very strong college focus. I'd become Director of Studies. I was then, I was Dean of the College for several years and then a tutor. And I didn't really want to take on something that was uh, going to make it impossible for me to do some of those college jobs. The centre, of course, didn't have any premises in its early years. It it was one of those Cambridge institutions that existed on paper, but it was still very active in the things that early organised. And then he bought the house in uh, Chaucer Road later. During this time of your assistant
0: leadership, you wrote two papers, the State Contracts and International Law and the Relationship of Use Ad bellum and Use in bello. Could you say something about these papers, um, where the circumstances rather than the actual content? Where, where, for example, the paper on State Contracts, where did that spring
1: from? Oh, that sprang out of my work on the International Law Reports. The uh, I had edited for the ILR the cases of BP and Libya, and Texaco and Libya, and later a third case, um, which I say later, it became public only much later, and that's Lianco and Libya. And these were all cases involving the, basically the same concession contract granted by the old royal government of Libya to foreign oil companies, and the different ways in which three different sole arbitrators treated the litigation about those concessions. Uh, it started off as going to be a rather short article. It ended up as one of the longest things I've written—about sixty pages, I think. Yusin uh, Bello and Yusad Bellum, That's a rather different matter. That was a thought I had when I was doing my writing my first set of lectures on uh, the laws of war course most of which I should add, were written on the kitchen table in the small hours of the morning because uh, our first child was born in January, 1982, which was the first year I was lecturing. And uh, she didn't sleep terribly well. (laughs) So um, a lot of those lectures were written with a small child uh, underfoot as it were. But uh, despite the rather grand title, what it's about is really the point that Philip was writing about that you just put to me. If you have a body of law that says it is illegal to go to war how can you reconcile that with having another body of rules that say but if you do this is how it has to be conducted and how can you have a law that distinguishes between the aggressor and the victim acting in self-defense and yet says but the rules about how you treat prisoners of war and so on must be applied equally to both and it was tackling some of those questions It was a very early attempt at it. I've written the same subject up in a number of later papers.
0: Thank you. You became a lecturer in the Faculty of Law in 1984, a position you held until 1996. How did your duties change?
1: They didn't change very much, actually. Uh, I was Secretary of the Faculty Board at the time, and uh, that was an all-consuming job. I've always said it's the reverse of what Stanley Baldwin said about power without responsibility. The Secretary of the Faculty Board is responsibility without power. Uh, but uh, no, I, I went on teaching in much the same way. The, the transition from assistant lecturer to lecturer in those days was much more akin to a probationary period than anything else.
0: Did you apply for the
1: position? Yes, I was is- fortunate. though A vacancy came up. Normally you do five years as an assistant lecturer. I'd done two and a half when a vacancy came up. I applied for that and I got it. So I I ended up with three years as an assistant lecturer and then moved up to the Scaled Lecturer.
0: From 1990 you were joint editor of the International Law Reports. Can you tell us anything about this activity?
1: This was a very close, the beginning of a very close relationship I had with Elie Lauterpacht, who took me under his wing and was extremely helpful to me in all sorts of ways. And we worked together on the series. He, but Ellie was very keen on the importance of primary materials in international law and the ILR is a, a tribute to that created by his father and Arnold McNair in the um, 1920s. It tries to pull together cases on international law from a wide variety of jurisdictions so you'd have a, an international court of justice case And then next to that in the reports might be a case from a first instance judge in Kenya or Malaysia or England. Uh, I find it it's still something I do I find it very rewarding to work on and uh, as I say perhaps the biggest reward of the lot was um, some 35 years of working quite closely with Ellie Wonderful. Um, In the
0: 12 years that you were a lecturer you wrote and edited two books, nine journal papers, four book chapters. This is a high output, and I wanted to ask you how you manage this with the normal load of administration and teaching.
1: Well, I, I, I think you do me more justice than uh, I'm entitled to on that. Uh, I, I'm not a particularly prolific writer by comparison with um, many other academics. Derek Bower, for example, was an extro- had an extraordinary output, and James Crawford. Considering all the things they did. But uh, I used to, starting in 1982 when our first child was born, I got into the habit of getting up early and working before breakfast, which uh, I'd never really get, got rid of.
0: Yes. Again, war and conflict were your speciality. I wondered if you visited any war zones during this period.
1: Uh, yes, I went to the occupied territories in the Middle East. Um, the other big conflict, the other conflict that I've written about quite a lot in that period is the Falklands. Well, no, I didn't manage to get to the Falklands for fairly obvious reasons. The, uh, I took the subject up, as I say, because the university asked me to, though I was very enthusiastic about doing it. One of the reasons why it became my main research focus is that I found it so very interesting working in a subject where the people you worked with were a mixture of academics, government lawyers and the military and they were an extraordinarily friendly group i think that's something which people don't understand because the subject is so confrontational but the various conferences i went to you'd have people who'd held quite high military ranks some of whom had served in the second world war if you look at those early conferences and they were very welcoming to those of us who were young academics i wouldn't say that other areas of international law were always the same Um, humanitarian law which is the if you like the softer friendlier term for the laws of war is a a cousin of human rights law I never found human rights conferences quite as welcoming and friendly as the humanitarian law ones nor were they as diverse
0: very interesting Um, so during this period you wrote more books book chapters, so in other words personal contributions, your personal thoughts as well as the two books. What what was your main research during this period?
1: It was mainly on the Laws of War. I'm not sure about the books. The ones I have on the
0: 1991 Kuwait conflict co-edited with Eddie and then the 93 Command and Laws of Armed Conflict.
1: I I think to say either of those was a book is, is overdoing it. The Kuwait conflict volume which four of us edited is a collection of documents. Uh, the, it's a very useful collection of documents I yes. still use it quite often but yes. uh, Command on the Laws of Armed Conflict is just a short brochure of about 80, 80 or 90 pages that I wrote for the um, for the army right. uh, trying to distill ideas about the laws of war for a broader audience
0: you appeared as counsel before the international court of justice during your time as lecturer in the faculty so how does that work
1: Well, I'd been called to the bar in 1978, as you mentioned, and I then did a pupillage part-time in the 1980s, um, where I had the great good fortune to work with David Calcutt, who went on to be Master of Magdalen shortly afterwards. And I did various, I deviled for him in various capacities. But I hadn't actually done any oratory, any advocacy of my own, until I got asked to appear in, must have been in about 1990 in the uh, Tolstoy Aldington libel action I had a a day on my feet in front of the libel judge Mr Justice Michael Davis on um, the uh, whether the Cossacks who surrendered at the end of the Second World War were prisoners of war or not I'm afraid my advocacy wasn't very successful because Count Tolstoy for whom I appeared went down for the largest award of libel damages in British history Uh, but uh, inappropriate to say anything more about that but that had given me a taste for it. And then in 1992, when Britain was sued by Libya in, over the Lockerbie bombing um, in dispute, uh, the Foreign Office asked me if I'd like to be junior counsel to Rosalind Higgins, which of course I accepted with alacrity and learned a great deal from the case and from her.
0: So you represented the UK government in most of these cases. Um, did you have associations with the Foreign Office?
1: Uh, Yes, I I never served in the Foreign Office, I've never been in the um, Civil Service, but uh, the Foreign Office still has a practice that uh, it hires barristers from independent practice to uh, represent it in court, it doesn't use its own in-house lawyers, uh, which is perhaps a bit surprising because the quality of those lawyers is excellent. Um, and I was a fortunate um, beneficiary of this practice because uh, I did the Lockerbie case to I say, and then they started briefing me on various other things.
0: You mentioned Dame Roslin. The last of the two cases that you were involved in during this time were on the use of nuclear weapons and she of course was on the ICJ at this time and she summed up her thoughts on the case in question 117 of her interview. She said It was her second case and it stays very much in her mind. The critical item 2E in the judgment split the panel 7-7 and it was here that Dame Rosman added her dissenting opinion. Mm -hmm. I wonder whether you think, Sir Christopher, that the court would come up with similar decisions today on the main issue of the use of nuclear weapons where there might be a 7-7 split. Mm
1: Well, interestingly, there was uh, an even split in a later nuclear weapons case between the Marshall Islands and the United Kingdom, Um, although that split was on a procedural issue of international law rather than on the legality of using weapons as such. That 7-7 split in 1996 was first of all it was the product of the unfortunate death of Aguiar Maudsley, one of the Latin American judges, very respected judge who died only a few weeks before the case was heard. You know it's a split the difference judgment not least because if you compare that paragraph, paragraph e of the dispositif, with the relevant paragraph of the reasoning on which it rests the two don't say quite the same thing which is rather unfortunate. Um, One talks about a state using nuclear weapons where its very existence had been put into jeopardy. The other paragraph talks about a state using nuclear weapons where the very existence of a state had been put into jeopardy. Well, of course, that makes an enormous difference when you're looking at the system of alliances that exist in international law. NATO in particular depends for its, and has always depended on the willingness of a nuclear member of NATO to resort in the last resort to nuclear weapons to protect other states within that alliance. Would the court decide it the same way today? I don't know. Probably um, you'd, have, you'd have the same sort of issues arising in the sense that you have judges from states that are dependent one way or another on nuclear weapons for their defense. Uh, and I think that those judges would be reluctant to come to the conclusion that any use of nuclear weapons in any circumstances whatsoever was unlawful.
0: Thank you. During this time of your lectureship, did you have any sabbaticals?
1: Uh, yes, I was on sabbatical in nineteen eighty-seven to eighty-eight, and then again in ninety-four
0: to ninety-five. Any faculty or administrative duties or committees that you recall?
1: During my sabbatical, no, no, the, no, in those days you weren't allowed to sit on any committees. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was on the faculty board for a few years in the 1980s. Um, last, my last faculty board meeting was slightly difficult for Morton fellows to serve on the faculty board because they both meet on a Thursday afternoon and so there's always a risk of a conflict. Um, my last faculty board meeting as secretary of the faculty board I remember very clearly because my wife gave birth to our second child that morning there was both a governing body and a faculty board uh, and I managed to get out of going to either on the basis that I was going to the hospital to see my wife and newborn child and introduce newborn to the uh, older daughter both institutions by the way were very forgiving about that so did you have
0: much, if anything, to do with the Lauterbach Centre during this time?
1: Yes, I was fairly active throughout this period. I used to give, uh, used to contribute to the Friday lunchtime talks programme and uh, the ILR were edited out of the centre so uh, I was down there fairly frequently.
0: So you would have obviously met uh, John Dugard who was director for yes. a short
1: time? And, yes, John's, um, a, John's an old friend. We We knew each other from here, from I think we first met, actually, at a conference on the laws of war in Jerusalem um, in about early
0: 1988. So, could you sum up your Cambridge years as groundwork for your illustrious later achievements?
1: I'm not sure I'd use the word, well, I'm not sure anyone should use the word illustrious about themselves, but I certainly wouldn't. Uh, Yes, I was very happy at Cambridge uh, throughout my time here, and the decision to apply for the chair of the LSE was not an easy one. But I was just a little bit nervous of ending up rather too comfortable in the tutorial college-based world of Cambridge in those days. And I thought it would be important to try and move into a different field. And LSE was very different from Cambridge and from Magdalen. Uh But certainly the years here at Cambridge gave me a number of things, a, a deep love of teaching, um, both supervising and lecturing. I won't say it was accompanied by a deep love of examining or of marking essays uh, I would be dishonest if I suggested that but teaching itself I very much enjoyed and you know I'm still in touch with a lot of the people I taught from those years uh, secondly it gave me a very good grounding in international law I was very conscious for example in some of my court work if you appeared in the international court you essentially were a lecturer you read a speech but if you appeared in the English courts, it was like being a supervision student all over again. You get very active judges firing questions at you. And it was an enormous help that I had been a supervisor of large numbers of students for nearly 20 years because I was used to being asked difficult questions by clever people. I was used to asking difficult questions myself and I was able to draw on that as a barrister. I don't think people realise the extent to which life as an advocate has moved on from the days of the grand Ciceronian speech to much more of a dialogue with the court not in international courts but in the courts in this country or in America or Australia the other big common law jurisdictions and the supervision system is in extremely good training for that because it, it teaches you how to react quickly to a question that's put to you to a difficulty of any kind. Thank you.
0: That leads us to the final section of this conversation, which is your time at LSE, which spanned 1996 to 2009. And it is not often that academics are promoted from a lectureship to a chair, so the London School of Economics must have thought very highly of your publications and the cases in which you've been involved. Could you comment on the circumstances in which you were deemed by LSE to be ideal for this position?
1: Well, I think you'd have to ask somebody who was on the appointments committee why they they chose me. But it was a very close battle. Um, Christine Chikin, uh, from who was then at Southampton, and I had both put in for the job, and in the end, I think the committee was split between us and decided to create two chairs, as they had the funding to do that. And we both joined the LSE as professors. And became very close friends as a result you know we got on well we'd known each other and been friendly before that but we became very close friends working at the L.C.
0: you followed another of our eminent scholars Dan Roslyn Higgins was there a sense of her legacy
1: oh very much so um, I think Roslyn Higgins is she'll forgive me for saying so one of the finest international lawyers of the generation and uh, She'd established a magnificent reputation at LSE. She was very highly regarded both by colleagues and by teachers, uh, by colleagues and by students. And uh, it was a great privilege to follow on from her. I also inherited her excellent secretary, Susan Hunt, who sadly died earlier this year. Uh, but. Uh, I've always said that the reason why Susan Hunt got on so well as secretary to both of us is that she could read our handwriting because uh, my handwriting and Rosalind's, neither of them is easy to uh, fathom out.
0: Okay. Well, interestingly, she left the LSE for the International Court, which was a route followed by you, um, a fortunate coincidence. Your duties there, part of your teaching or administration,
1: Uh, Teaching, well, one of the things that was an attraction about the LSE is I was able to concentrate on international law when I went there. Um, For years at Cambridge, I'd taught other subjects. I taught criminal law, which I very much enjoyed for a decade. In fact, my my first published work is on criminal law, just a case note or two. But uh, I'd supervised in conflict of laws, in constitutional law and in European Union law. But by the mid 1990s, the pace of development in both international and European law had reached the stage where it was getting more and more difficult to keep up with everything. Uh, and so I was quite grateful to be able to concentrate on international law. On a, I taught the international undergraduate course at LSE, which was very similar to the one that I taught here, except that the students weren't all lawyers. Many of them were doing international relations and under the LSE system, anyone reading any subject take international law so you had to remember that you had to pitch the lecture in a different way from Cambridge where you were pitching it at people who'd already done a year of legal study only half the the class would have done that I taught the law of war and armed conflict teaching both if you like the Derek Bowick part and the part I taught myself here in Cambridge I taught the law of uh, the United Nations and a bit of international criminal law which was quite good fun to do especially since the ICC was being set up at the time.
0: I know that uh, James Crawford was involved with the ICC, did you have any involvement with it?
1: No, not really. Um, I was rather a a sceptic to start with, not so much about the ICC, I was very sceptical about the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia um, because I thought that it was set up by the Security Council in order to be seen to be doing something when the council and its member states weren't prepared to do anything anything more on the ground in Bosnia in particular and I thought if it failed and I expected it to do so then it would set back the idea of having a permanent international criminal court in fact I was completely wrong about that Uh, the ICTY after a bumpy start turned out to be immensely successful and I don't think we would have the international criminal court if it hadn't been for that
0: Do you deem your most significant achievements at London School of Economics?
1: Well, I hope that the biggest achievement would be um, teaching and inspiring people to to go into careers in international law. Uh, I I didn't do very much small group teaching. There isn't an equivalent of the supervision at LSE, but uh, I very much enjoyed the lectures and seminars that I took part in. Um, I published more articles during my time there, though I'm afraid I never finished the monograph I should have worked on.
0: You wrote further five journal papers and nine book chapters, and during this period, more book chapters than papers. Do you think that it was your higher status that elicited more requests to join joint projects, more international ventures?
1: I don't really know, to be honest. Um, I'd never thought about it that way. Uh, the better known you are the more likely you are to be asked to contribute a chapter to a a collection of essays Uh, and there's a long-running argument about whether book chapters are more or less valuable than uh, articles in peer-reviewed journals Uh, I don't think it matters frankly I think the what matters is the quality of what you write rather than where you publish it
0: also I sensed a greater emphasis on your research interest in human rights and state responsibilities, jurisdiction, sovereignty, etc. rather than straightforward law of war subjects. Do you think this is a fair comment?
1: Yes, I I, I tried to branch out a bit more when I was at the LSE. I was afraid that um, particularly by the late 80s, early 90s, I'd been concentrating too much on laws of war scholarship.
0: Is, is that the reason that you decided to branch out into... Yes, I, I, I
1: didn't lose this. my interest in the law of armed conflict at all, but I did try to um, delve into other areas of international law in my publications. Particularly, I, was in, I became very interested in jurisdictional immunities because that was a large part of my practice. And I found that the practice and academic work here interacted very effectively.
0: During this time, you published your book, Essays on War and International Law. Was that a teaching guide?
1: No, that was a suggestion from a publisher that, to produce a collection of essays um, drawn from what I'd written before, which uh, I was happy to do.
0: So while you still while you were at LSE, you were involved in uh, various bodies and panels, and I wonder if you could tell us something about these appointments and honours. In 1998, you were a member of a panel of arbitrators of an mm-hmm. Sea convention
1: as far as I'm aware that never made any impact whatsoever Um, I did do a couple of cases as counsel uh, on board the sea matters uh, the Barbados Trinidad and Tobago case and the Guiana Suriname case Uh, but that has nothing to do with my participation on the panel I never got asked to arbitrate a case during that period the only maritime case I did as an arbitrator, later was the Chagos Islands case between Mauritius and the UK, where I was appointed by the United Kingdom. But I think I was no longer on the arbitrators panel by then. In '99, uh,
0: you became Queen's Counsel.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, I was very fortunate in my timing there. I had just put in an application, which was probably rather premature for uh, uh, appointment as a QC under the old system, and. Uh, I then got asked to argue the Pinochet case in the House of Lords for the uh, effectively for the government of Spain. I I was paid by the Crown Prosecution Service, but the CPS acts for the re- requesting government in an extradition case. So forgive me Leslie, are you getting cold because the heating seems to have turned itself off? I'm I just I'm
0: perfect. Right.
1: Thank you. Um the 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 Pinochet case was obviously attracted an enormous amount of attention. It was an extremely challenging case too. It's incidentally the case that brought home to me most how much I owed to years of supervising here because it really was advocacy in the form of being cross-examined by five very, and then the second time seven uh, very distinguished law lords. So it was uh, very helpful that I had that supervision training to fall back on. The other thing I can remember thinking when I I got up to speak in the Pinochet case was that put it crudely you once followed Harold Macmillan speaking in the Cambridge Union you can do this so it was very helpful to have that self-confidence to fall back on Um, but yes I think doing the Pinochet case in 1998 to 99 uh, was uh, certainly a boost to my chances of being made a QC and I I was made a QC um, in April of that year
0: In 2001, you were governor of the Ditchley Foundation.
1: Yes, the Ditchley Foundation is a wonderful institution. Ditchley is a country house in Oxfordshire, which during the war was owned by uh, a conservative MP called Ronald Tree and his wife, Nancy Lancaster. Nancy Lancaster had modernised it in a way which was really very attractive. For example, the hot water actually flowed when you turned the tap on. And they lent the house to Churchill at the weekends, uh, which he used as an alternative to Checkers, uh, because Chequers was more vulnerable to bombing if there was a full moon. And it was at Ditchley that he sat up through the night with Harry Hopkins, Roosevelt's assistant, uh, discussing um, the idea of the Lendley scheme. And it was enormously influential in bringing America closer to Britain in that very difficult period of 1940, early 41. After the war, the house was bought by a trust set up by David Wills uh, to be used as a centre for, primarily in its early years, Anglo-American discussions about international affairs. And then it broadened out, it became much more global. Uh, I'd been to a number of conferences in the 1990s, and in 2001, they very kindly asked me to become a governor, which I did for the next 20 years. I've been to numerous conferences there these weekend meetings and they are a a very enjoyable way of mixing work with pleasure
0: in 2002 you were a companion Order of St Michael and St George what was this for?
1: you never know quite what it was for it's services to international law but uh, I think it may have had something to do with the fact that the previous year I'd been the lead counsel for Britain in a case in the European Court of Human Rights called Bankovic and the Bankovic and Belgium and others and uh, we had had quite a considerable success in it so I, I, I put it down to that
0: 2003 adventure Middle temple
1: that was a that, that was a great joy i have to say um the, uh, the benches of the inn are a little bit like the fellows of a Cambridge College, except that there are many more of them. Uh, and uh, it gave me uh, a wonderful social and academic focus in London, which I, I've always thoroughly enjoyed.
0: And then in 2004, you became a member of ICSID,
1: uh, A member of the panel of arbitrators for ICSID. yes. And that's uh, I'm still on that panel. That's proved very much an, an important part of my life. I was still mainly doing work as council in the mid-noughties but uh, since I became a judge I've given up council work completely but I do a lot of arbitration through ICSID.
0: Thank you. I think this would be a good place to break and all that remains is for me to thank you most sincerely for a truly fascinating account. I'm greatly looking forward to our next conversation next week. Thank you very much indeed.
1: Leslie that's very kind of you it's uh, uh, been a great pleasure for me to take part in this conversation with you. you.